Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 191 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Heather Riga. She's an SLP that has worked in a variety of settings, including schools, hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, inpatient rehab, and home health. She currently works at a rural critical access hospital in Indiana, servicing individuals from birth to geriatrics. She primarily treats outpatients and performs modified barium swallow studies, but also services the inpatient floor and ACU. Her clinical interests include pediatric feeding disorders, adult dysphagia, head and neck cancer, stroke recovery, and progressive neurological conditions. She is a member of the Indiana Speech Language Hearing Association and an ACE Award recipient. And thank you, Heather. We had many, many, many technical issues <laughs> while trying to record this podcast. So thank you, Heather, for your patience. And I hope everybody enjoys her perspective. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Heather. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to this. Yes. Well, thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to have this conversation. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Heather Riga, and I am a speech-language pathologist at a critical access hospital in rural Indiana. Uh, I graduated from the University of Cincinnati, and I have worked in critical access hospitals in some capacity for my entire almost seven-year career at this point. I've been part-time, PRN, full-time. Um, I have worked in the schools. I PRN and inpatient rehab. I've done home health. Uh, I've done a little bit of everything. All right. I love it. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about what it's like to be an SLP in a critical access hospital. Okay. 
Awesome. So I guess let's start with what does that even mean? A critical access hospital, at least according to CMS, is it has to be located in obviously a rural area. Uh, And then it has to be at least 35 miles away from another hospital, unless the only way to get in between those hospitals is through like mountainous terrain or secondary country roads. So then it can be reduced to um, a little bit closer. Usually it's about 25 beds. You can have separate subunits, I believe, like, um, like an inpatient like psych or OB or something like that. And then you have to have, you know, 24 hour emergency services and a couple other things that I don't, a lot of uh, legal jargon that I just, that's no, that's not how I roll. Okay. Awesome. What, what got you interested in working in this population? I, what's lovely about this, about working in such um, a rural areas, you get a little bit of everything. So I see patients from birth through geriatrics and end of life. I've seen you know, patients across the lifespan, which is both daunting <laughs> and wonderful at the same time, because there's, I mean, our field is so broad. And then when you have to know a lot of things about a lot of people, it, it can be a lot. It's a lot of information. And the patients that I work with, you know, range from, you know, children with speech and language disorders. I saw the, or I listened to the episode about pediatric cancer And, you know, I've worked with a handful of survivors of pediatric cancers as well. Patients with progressive neurological conditions like Parkinson's, Huntington's, head neck cancer, stroke, little, literally a little bit of everything. And what got me, I guess, circling back to the original question, (laughs) as far as like what population, Mm because there's a ton. Yeah, Yeah, I knew, I knew when I was in school, I drawn towards the medical realm. But, you know, sometimes getting a CFY in a hospital can be really hard. And not that I'm recommending this, but I was driving an hour and a half one way to my first job because it was a a hospital. And I'm like, okay, I will, this is what I want. And that's where I went. But it was hard. I only had one child at the time. My oldest was still an infant. So the drive got to be a little rough, you know, even though it was part-time, but still. And then I somehow landed in the critical access hospital that I'm now full-time in. And then, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I just, I felt drawn towards the, the medical side. And um, I just, I'm the type that I, if I really want to learn something, I want to find the people that can teach me those things. And Sometimes that just means a really long commute. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I think it was right after I, no, no, it was trying to think where in my career I was, but I think I was maybe like five, six years out and I had worked a sniff for a while and then decided to just kind of explore um, like a different setting. And I had found this, this other sniff. It was almost like an LTAC that I loved, but it was an hour and 45 minutes each way. And like, I still just love that place. I hate, like I hated the commute every day and it stunk, but I love that place. <laughs> so I totally get that. Yeah. Especially when you can find, you know, such a, a place that really sparks that fire yeah. that yeah. makes you want to go to work. It's not about like, oh, I don't want to go to work. It's yeah. I don't want to get up in the morning and drive that far, but I still want to go and do my job. Yeah. Yeah. And piggybacking on 
the um, the populations that I get to work with or what I do throughout the day. Um, you know, I had mentioned that I see you know a wide variety of patients, and the majority of my day is spent without patients. But I also get um, patients that are on our med surge floor. Um, we have a few, a really really small <laughs> ACU of just a few beds, but you know since COVID, everything has changed as far as, you know, how big or small an ACU can be. So inpatient ACU, I do, um, I go to radiology for modified barium swallow studies. Uh, unfortunately we don't have fees yet. <laughs> One day that's a goal. And then I've also been consulted to the OB unit and the ED. Right. Cool. So I can literally go from like an infant feeding session, whether it's on the OB or outpatient to someone who just had a stroke to an outpatient Parkinson's patient to a kid working on their R's, L's. It, you know, I, it's, it's amazing how I can see such a wide, wide range of people all in a single day. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I have so much. I never get bored. Yeah, I'm sure. I have so much respect for, for SLPs that just cover the gamut and have to know so much. And yeah, I think it's awesome. So, well, and with that, since we do have to know so much, part of that is because being a rural hospital, and it's similar to, you know, a rural SNF, so patients might have to travel well over an hour to get to a larger city or a larger hospital system. And, you know, if the rural hospital setting, it, they don't have that um, specific specialty, or if they don't, you know, they don't have the capabilities to do certain testing or certain like chemotherapies, you know, then they have to go. So, I mean, they might be driving, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, depending on you know, which side of the city that they're going to. And that's where, you know, being in a rural setting, you want to still know where you're comfortable and competent in, but, you know, we want to provide, you know, the highest quality care that we can. So the patients don't have to travel that far. So that's, that's part of it with um, treating such a, a wide variety of um, patients. And that's, you know, kind of a a rough spot with being um, in a rural hospital is that transportation piece. And um, I think I'd mentioned the last time that, you know, being a rural hospital and being in a small town, you know, everybody, you know, kind of knows everybody. So that's where HIPAA and patient privacy and, you know, as my mom would say, you know, minding your P's and Q's. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's important to be mindful of that. And, you know, similar to the rural SNFs is that some hospitals you only have PRN SLP coverage. So, I mean, that might be fine for a little while, but then you might not have coverage for two weeks. And, you know, people don't have strokes based on your availability or your work schedule. Yeah. Like we like to think. And another thing with working at a rural hospital is that sometimes you might have limited resources as far as, you know, fiscal resources or technology. So I have seen, you know, like modified barium swallow studies, I've seen studies be done using, you know, a camcorder and VHS tape. And, you know, you know, this is 2021, but it wasn't all that long ago that, you know, I've seen this and, you know, sometimes that's, that's what you got. And you might have to track down, you know, one of, two, you know, giant TVs to push in on the cart so you can rewatch them. Um, so that can be rough for some, you know, more rural and maybe limited 
facilities in that regard. Yeah, but let me let me commend you for pushing the record button because I know so many places actually don't record and you actually have to in order for it to count for billing. So thank you for oh. doing that. <laughs> and it's also yeah. And, and if I'm getting it on my soapbox, it's also not wise to just go by, you know, fly by the seat of your pants and not go back and, you know, watch the recording in slow-mo and things like that too. So Right. I literally just had that conversation okay. with my student this morning. Okay. So that's it's great. As we were reviewing uh, a, re- a recording for a, a swallow study we did this morning. So I'm right there with you. Good, good. But, you know, we talk about how hard it is working in such a rural area, whether it's a SNF or a hospital. But on the flip side of that, you know, especially for thinking back or um, thinking about our pediatric patients, you know, other than gr- their grown ups at home teachers at school, we might be the most consistent grownups in their lives. So they know, oh, I, I go see, you know, Miss Heather for speech on Tuesdays. And then, you know, COVID happened and that, you know, that kind of ended that for a little while, unfortunately. So that sense of community and building such a strong connection to not only the hospital system, but the people that live there. I mean, you know, you're the one providing care and you want to provide the best possible care for this community. So that's that's something that I personally take seriously is that community aspect and just, you know, these hospitals can sometimes be central to a county community, um, you know, even larger, you know, multi-county areas that, you know, it's, it's important to keep that in mind. And then, you know, another, the flip side of everybody knowing everybody, you know, just building those stronger connections. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes you might have, at least for for us, you know, I think we have one, two, five sniffs, you know, in you know the immediate area, and that's not kind of like assisted living and other places that other sniffs that might be a little bit farther out. So, you know, you might have some some resources and people to reach out to, and that communication piece. You know, I think we've we've talked about. You know, my patient from the sniff went to the hospital to go get a modified done, and I know nothing about what happened. As the rural hospital that often gets those, please reach out. I have had wonderful conversations with therapists that are just trying to do the best that they can for their patient. And, you know, it, I know we're all busy and it, it's hard to reach out sometimes and make those connections, but I encourage everyone to, to at least reach out so you can get to know each other and at least know, you know, the therapists at the SNFs and the hospitals. It's important to, to make those connections. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Well, thank you for thank you for sharing that because I think that's so it's so 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 important and I think so many you know sniff I say sniff SLPs but even home health ones at any setting of the community you know sometimes you just feel like who is this person on the other side of the world doing these swallow studies so thank you for opening that door because it's it's critical oh please that door is always open <laughs> okay let me let me ask you Heather I want to go back a little bit because you were just kind of talking about you know the community aspect and, and during COVID and everything did you guys explore any sort of telehealth or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, Myself, actually, and along with some of my colleagues, we worked really hard to get the telehealth stuff right off the ground and going. It took a bit because, you know, at the height of quarantine, you know, everything, what we were told one minute was different than, you know, an hour later. So (laughs) that got to be a little tricky, but we did. And at least me personally, I only did with um, my pediatric folks. And was it the most ideal 
yes and no, but I mean, it was, it was a good bridge and, you know, getting to see, especially, um, you know, some of my little ones that I hadn't seen in weeks and, um, you know, I treat pediatric feeding disorders as well. So when I get to see my, my feeding friends, as I refer to them, you know, I, it just, it made my heart happy. It made my heart happy to at least see them on, you know, over the screen and try and help because everyone's home. So very functional. You can get a lot of work done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had such a love hate relationship with, with telehealth, just with my son through the pandemic, there was some, some therapies that just could not happen that ways. And there was other ways that I was like other therapists that I was so grateful that we were able to switch to that model and just keep in touch. So I'm just, I you know, want to just encourage everybody to still see if that model might work for some people. Cause you just don't know. It just might. Right. My, uh, one of my daughters, you know, she had to do occupational therapy via telehealth during quarantine and, um, being on the parent side of it was a little <laughs> different. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it, um, I mean, we got the job done. It wasn't, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but we got the job done and at least it was, you know, a bridge. It helped. Yeah. yeah. So I, I hope I'm hopeful that it's at least an option for a lot of our patients, whether it's adults or pediatrics. So COVID, you know, of course, changed everything for everybody. And again, I can only speak to my own personal experience, but where, where we are, the rates were, they were really high a couple of times. I think at one point, maybe like the highest rate per capita in the state. Um, it was, it was a lot. And, you know, thankfully, since at least my hospital system, we you know we had, you know, like we have a pulmonologist and, you know, we have that department. So with that, you know, we had all of these, you know, critically ill respiratory patients from COVID. And it was, it was so kind of overwhelming just, you know, walking around and seeing everything so stoic and can't see anyone's face and smile. And it was hard. So we were seeing, you know, sicker patients than normal, but it's, I really feel for the facilities that did not have, you know, the appropriate supplies. I mean, thankfully, you know, we, we did, but I know a lot of people didn't. And at least what I've heard from some other therapists in rural areas that, you know, getting those resources during quarantine and shut down when things got really bad, it was, it was hard when you're just trying to do the best you can and stay safe for keep yourself safe and keep your family safe. But with that, with those, you know, really, really sick patients, um, I found that getting to work with respiratory therapy, pulmonology, even like getting to know the nurses and the hospitalists and the, and the CNAs, you know, on, on a much deeper level to where it was, it wasn't a, I mean, granted it was never, but it was never, that's not my job. It was, what can we do to help? You know, can we help? Can I get you anything? You know, you're in full PPE, you know, can I grab something? Um, you know, do you need help, you know, moving somebody, you know, it's, you know, you do what you feel comfortable with, but building that, that teamwork aspect became really evident. And I just, I admire our, you know, our, our nurses and doctors so much. I got to see, um, I got to see them in action and it was truly remarkable. And I just appreciated them so much. I call them life changers. Any, any nurse I work with on the med search floor would tell you that I call them life changers every single day, every day. Yeah. And they are, and I love them. <laughs> but I guess you know, I would, I'm asking people now. I would love to know kind of how 
you know, are you guys back to quote unquote pre-COVID days or are there some things that since COVID has happened that are still implemented in your hospital or are there some things that you don't think might ever go back to pre-COVID days? I hate that everything is like, like pre-COVID. I know. I don't know how else to say it. I know. It's <laughs> it, true. It, nobody's watching me, but I keep doing like, I'm cringing, doing air quotes whenever I say it, but like, I don't know how else to say it. But every, everybody knows what you mean when you say pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So no, you're, you're entirely right. And yes, some things have changed. You know, of course we're wearing masks, you know, and you know, granted, you know, we were always cleaning, but you know, cleaning protocols, you know, everywhere have you know, been changed and trying to keep everybody spread out, especially, you know, with like a pediatric therapy area, whether it's a private clinic or outpatient, you know, that waiting area can get, you know, <laughs> pretty busy, pretty fast. So just trying to keep everybody separated, um, sanitizing their hands, cleaning, um, you know, I, I clean my therapy area and you know, I even, you know, we clean the floors in between patients, especially, you know, with the little kids. So it's, that's been, it's been good. It's been good. We get into a rhythm and it's, it's totally fine now. So I, I, tr I try to reframe. I'm big on reframing. So I try to reframe everything to at least find, you know, some ounce of positivity. Yeah. So I know we all, we all hear it as far as um, that's the way it's always been done. This is the way that I was taught in school X amount of years ago. And even since I graduated and I graduated in 2014, you know, it's, things have changed so drastically since that time that, I mean, it's, it's really hard to keep up with the research, but it's at least taking the time to find out, you know, what's working, what is the research saying, you know, what we knew 10 years ago about aspiration pneumonia is far different than what we know now. And, you know, with, with thickened liquids or diet modification, patient autonomy, with diet recommendations, you know, I can remember thinking, like, cringe thinking about it, like, oh, coughing, thinking liquids, like, no, 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 <laughs> no. It's like if if I knew then what I knew now, yeah. totally different. But yeah. all the more reason, you know, that's why we have instrumentals, and that's why we have, you know, the MBSIMP, and you know, moving towards you know standardization of these instrumentals. And I've really. Um, I found that that, advo that advocacy portion of evidence-based practice, you know, advocating for the instrumentals by presenting the research yeah. or, you know, physicians, you know, if someone just got, um, they just had a, a trach placed and, you know, the surgeon or whatever is saying, you no, know, do the blue dye test. And, you know, it might not be the best thing. There could be I remember right and correct me if I'm wrong I'm sure someone will a 50 percent you know false uh, negative rate yep, yep and you know well, let's do an instrumental and wouldn't you know it there might have been trace aspiration there you know and you know chin tucks at bedside without you know watching it under floral you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to look up research articles and present them to folks if, um, if I'm really passionate about it. But, you know, I want to hear, I want to be receptive and understanding. And it's important to have that nice professional dialogue. And, you know, working with such diverse populations ranging, you know, from because the research for children, specifically with dysphagia, is very different from the research with adults. Now there's some overlap, but it's, it's different. 
And, you know, there's, there's not, you know, a ton of research with pediatric feeding, but there's, there's more being done, but I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll, we'll get some more research and, you know, things will be a little more um, understandable, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Useful, you know, versus a, it's always been done this way. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, you know, like your, you know, administration, things like that, if you can, candidly, I guess, you know, in supporting you with evidence-based practice, because I know that's always, you know, can be such a hard thing of how do we, how do we move past how things have always been done? Mm -hmm. With that, it's when you go to administration, and I mean, I've, I've had to go to my director, you know, to advocate for, let's say a specific test or a training that I wanted to do and the reason why. So, I mean, we can say, you know, I want, I want, I want all day long, but you need to be able to explain why and have some evidence to back it up. And it might be, you know, submitting a proposal for the capital budget for, you know, equipment. So, you know, PTs might have, you know, some bigger equipment that they you know might want and we might want, you know, fees or, biofeedback or more trainings, um, you know, it's, don't be afraid to, to reach out and, you know, start with your manager, start with your colleagues and, you know, get some feedback, reach out to the people that they, if they have those things already, reach out to them and get more information. They might have a, a list of resources, a list of research articles. You know, it, it's not like you're, um, you know, not wanting to do the work, but I, like I said before, I like finding the people that know what I would like to know. And if they've done it before, I, I'm not afraid to, to reach out. So I encourage everyone to at least try, at least try. And if they say no, then all the more reason to work on the proposal again and try again. Yeah, awesome. I love it. I feel like that's, you know, and I can ask you this because I feel like this is a common, I don't want to say complaint. I, I hate the word complaint. I try not to ever use it, but people will say, you know, it might be easy for you in your big, you know, urban or suburban hospital setting, but in our rural hospital, we just don't have access to those tools or we don't have the budget for it or, you know, we just can't get it. So I'm curious what you would say to, you know, not, not combat that argument, but to encourage SLPs that, you know, we can get access to this stuff. It it just takes some change. That's a phenomenal question. And that's entirely right. Because I mean, that is a common complaint. What I would say to therapists that are wanting to do something like that, or they they feel that way. Okay. You know, you don't have the budget. Okay. Where can we find other funding grants, other organizations, sponsorships? You know, I can only speak so much, but I mean, if, if there's not something there, then what can we do to make it be there? You know, sometimes the opportunity is just not, it's not going to, you know, to be, it's not going to be handed to you. And sometimes we have to create our own opportunities. You know what I mean? With, within our resources. I mean, we all have, I have a big dreams. I mean, I could have this big giant feeding clinic, <laughs> but you know, you want to work within the constructs of your organization, but you know, it's, it's okay to sit down with your director or leadership in general and say, this is what I'm what I'm leaning towards or what I'm thinking, what is your feedback? What, what can I do to help this versus a, what can you do for me? It's what, what can I do to help my patients? What so work together so we can provide that highest quality care possible, even in our, you know, small 25 bed hospital. 
It's, it's, we get so stuck, you know, not wanting to ask the questions and, you know, what if they say no? Well, I mean, great. I, I felt that way. I mean, I think we all have. I mean, it's very easy for us to sit here and say like, well, just go ask. Well, and I get it, but let's just ask. And if they say no, then, well, I'll try again later. I'll find it with more research and more evidence and, you know, even more gusto. Yeah, I love it. So, like I said before, with, you know, getting to know the other departments in a much more intimate way during COVID, that made it a little bit easier. And, you know, being a smaller facility, everyone's pretty accessible. I mean, yes, we're all busy, but, you know, an email, a message, you know, I could walk down the hall and, you know, find somebody um, that... I was, I'm almost hesitant to ever say like that, that interdisciplinary, because I think there's a, a much better term to describe that kind of collaboration, but you know, that, that collaboration between departments and disciplines, that's the only, that's the best way that we can provide care for our patients. Um, I think it was a, a football coach that said, you know, everybody has a job, do your job. When everyone does their job, the team has a much better chance of winning. Our patients have a much better chance of winning if everybody does their best at, at their job. And I love that. I mean, I, I learned so much from our, our, our PTs, our OTs, our respiratory therapists, pulmonology, our hospitalists, and the nurses. I mean, you there's something to be learned from everybody. So I'm like, I'm not afraid to, to ask questions, you know, ask respiratory therapy, what instrument that they're using for, you know, I think it was a percussion therapy. You know, I'm I'm not afraid to ask those questions because that's not my area of expertise. That's theirs, and I love it when people take the time out to to educate me on that. Teamwork makes the dream work. Does it's the truth? I say that all the time at work. I'm sure my colleagues are probably <laughs> sick of it. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. All right. Any any final thoughts, Heather? Anything else you want to cover that we didn't cover? Oh my gosh. I'm trying to think there's just so much, like I said before, you know, it's don't be afraid to reach out and ask the questions, whether it's talking to the hospital SLP that saw your patient from the sniff or a swallow study, or if someone's hospitalized and you don't hesitate to reach out and make those connections. Cause you never, you never know when those connections might happen again you know, seek out the resources. And that's one of the many reasons why I love the collective. That's why I love it. Cause I know if I needed more information, I can go right to it and it's there. And I know that it's legitimate evidence-based and I just, I love it. I love everything about it. So I appreciate all of your hard work and everyone's hard work behind the scenes between the podcast and the collective. I absolutely adore it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) Something else that I really, I try to instill in the students that I've had is it's not just knowing what to do. It's knowing why we do it. It's that why, why do, why do they need to be on? Why does the patient need to have a certain diet? Why do they need to use whatever strategy? Why are we using this therapy approach? And it's not going to be a, I don't know, you know, I, I saw it somewhere one time, you know, or you know, it's always been done. Like, no, let's, let's tell me, tell me why. And if I, if I can't give you a reason why, then that's a problem. You know what I mean? And don't be afraid to, you know, do the research and find the why, 
you know, we're, we're all there for a reason to help our patients and, you know, they, they should know that and know that we're doing our, the best that we possibly can. Yep. It's true. All right. Well, thank you. I Heather. love my job. Oh, good. I'm, I'm so glad. I love when people love their job because I love our field and I tell people that all the dang time. So I love people that love our field and are passionate about what they do. And yeah, so I love it. Oh, what are, what are some, some game changing articles for you? What are some things that have kind of changed your, your, your thought pattern, your practice? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I know I put the Langmore paper, but it's it's not just that. Yeah, it was, and I I vividly remember this moment where I think I was listening to the podcast on my forty mile commute to work, and someone referenced it, and it a light bulb went off. I'm like, that's why, that's why I'm doing this, or that's why I should not be doing X, Y, and Z, and it I made that change that day that day. And then there's, um, I think it's leader, you know, really opened my eyes to the, to the risk management side of things. And, you know, not everyone needs thick and liquid. Some people do, but not everybody does. And it's, you know, that quality of life and patient autonomy and, you know, really respecting that and figuring out what can we do to make it as, as safe as possible. And it's, like I said, it's not just the articles. It's that moment where you go, oh, it's that implementation. And there's there's that gap in our field sometimes or a lot of times where we have all this research and we can we can throw research papers out. But OK, how do we put that into practice? Yes. yes. And it's getting that connection. That was a real game changer. And I I love it when I can make those connections with the research articles that I read. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's such such the biggest thing in our field. And, and it's actually interesting. I was talking to a researcher the other day, and I want to try to get her on the podcast too. But we were talking about how it's it's difficult to read research. If you are not a researcher, nobody taught you how to be a critical appraiser, a critical thinker. You know, we we try very hard as clinicians. We, you know, some of us spend hours and hours poring over things, but there's just some things that you just don't learn as a clinician that researchers do learn. So I think, you know, as much as people say, you know, just you got to keep reading the research, you do. But there just is that really difficult piece of implementing it in our own practice. And so I'm grateful to all of the researchers that we've had come on this podcast and help us understand <laughs> how it does, you know, translate clinically to us because it is it is hard and it's not, you know, something that you intuitively just know or learn. Or Right now, I'm. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. And even years ago, pre, um, pre grad school, you know, I, I worked in research. It was not in our field, but you know, it was, you know, like a student internship thing. And, you know, I learned a lot there, but even then, you know, they're, they're researchers for a reason. They get, yeah. Yeah. I have some friends that have done their PhDs and I'm like, Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos to them. Yes. I, yes. I love yes. them for yes. that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts, Heather? This is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to speak with you. And I will tell you that reaching out to you was a goal I had for this year. Oh. It's true. Because, you know, I, I've spent my whole career in this type of setting. So I mean, I feel like I know a little something about it. So why was I afraid? Yeah. Why? Good. Did, did anybody that did anybody on my team bite you or anything? Was it was it okay? <laughs> no. Good. Okay. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is 
Everyone's so not granted, like mostly via email, but still. Oh, well, good. Good. Well, thank you for reaching out. I'm glad you did. I hate that everybody always feels so scared and intimidated and we're all just people trying to do our best. So, and I appreciate that. And that's why I'm, I'm happy to help in whatever capacity I can in general. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Appreciate you being on. Thank you so much. All right. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.